This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Sometime this week, 55 people from around the world were scheduled to arrive in Colorado and begin living as refugees. It's unlikely many of them will get here, at least not for a while. Their trips were canceled after President Donald Trump issued an executive order late Friday that put a 120-day hold on any refugees entering the country and cut the number that will be allowed in by half after that. The state's refugee coordinator, Kit Tainter, is here to explain how Colorado is being affected by the order. Kit, welcome to the program. Morning. Tell me more about the 55 people who were scheduled to come to Colorado this week. Who are they? Right. So there are families from all over the world, um, including countries such as Afghanistan, Eritrea, Bhutan, Syria, Iraq. Um, So we were hoping to welcome these families. Many of them were joining family members that were already here. And some of them were special immigrant visa holders, meaning that they served um, our military as interpreters overseas. Is there a chance that any of them could make it into the country or in Colorado? Yes, if they are scheduled to arrive before Thursday and we're not one of those seven countries listed in the executive order, we do anticipate there this week. Now, is that tenuous or is that pretty expected? It's pretty expected. Um, That being said, there are always last-minute things that can happen that causes travel to be canceled, but I don't think that it would be canceled because of the executive order. Now, these are refugees, and by international definition, that means they have been forced to leave their country because of persecution, war, or violence. Is there any chance they could be in danger because they're having to stay where they are? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, refugees have fled their home countries and are oftentimes in unstable conditions wherever they are, whether that is a large refugee camp um, or whether that's in an urban situation. So the refugee future is always uncertain. Um, Oftentimes they're unsure about what their future might bring, whether that's employment, being able to meet basic needs or just really basic things like where to call home for the night. And I want to mention the seven countries included in this executive order. It is Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. President Trump's executive order also cuts the overall number of refugees who will be allowed to enter the country during this fiscal year from 110,000 to 50,000. What does that mean for Colorado's refugee population? Well, for fiscal year 2017, we were hoping to resettle 2,195 refugees statewide. And that was doing our part for uh, the nation and trying to reach that 110,000 refugees, knowing that we are facing an unprecedented refugee crisis overseas of 19.5 million refugees. So working towards that 110 and towards that around 2,000 here in Colorado was something that we felt like was our part to do um, as citizens of this global world. Now having the national number cut down to 50,000, we're anticipating to resettle less than half of what we had wanted to, um, so down to around uh, 1,000 or so. And before this executive order, how many refugees uh, did Colorado bring into the, the, the state, and how does that fit into other states across the country? Sure. So we resettled last year 1,960 refugees from all over the world. Um, We are not in the top 10 of states that resettle refugees. Um, We've generally resettled around 2% of the the total number of refugees coming in the country. But there's other states like Texas, um, New York, and even Tennessee, which are higher than we are. I see. Now, President Trump's executive order says, quote, in order to protect Americans, the United States must ensure that those admitted to this country do not bear hostile attitudes towards it and its founding principles. And it calls for a review of security procedures to make sure those who enter don't pose a threat 
to this country. Uh, Colorado's congressional delegation has mixed views on that. We have their statements at CPRnews.org. Some Republicans agree with the order. Congressman Doug Lamborn calls it, quote, prudent action. And Congressman Ken Buck of Greeley said, quote, our country has always offered hope for the oppressed and homeless, but hope also requires safety and security. Is it too much to ask people to wait 120 days, that's four months, to ensure that every possible step is in place to avoid terrorism and keep U.S. citizens safe? Well, refugees are already the most vetted category of traveler to the United States. So their process takes at least 18 to 24 months, if not longer. There are already eight federal agencies involved, multiple different security checks, biometrics. We're talking fingerprints and iris scans. So there's already a lot of security measures to ensure um, that the refugees that we're welcoming um, will promote safety and, and sanctuary here in the United States. What we find is refugees are fleeing the very violent that we fear um, and uphold the same sort of desire to live in a safe community. Now, the refugees that are in the pipeline to arrive in Colorado, if they're in limbo uh, when this executive order is is changed or, or adapted, will they be allowed to come in again or do they have to start the process over? How does that work? Well, unfortunately, because of the complex security and other processes, it's not like a light switch. You can't just turn it on and turn it off. So many of the families that had already um, been told that they were coming to rebuild their lives here in Colorado um, may be months or even years until they're processed again to get clear. Um, Because the security, certain security measures might expire, their health screenings might expire. And we're talking about trying to do all of this in sometimes unstable conditions in refugee camps. Um, Maybe it's the rainy season in Kenya, and it's hard to get to the camp to do some of these checks. So it's not a light switch. It can't just turn back on. And I think that's some of our fear, is that even though it's only a 120-day moratorium and we can think of that as a pause, um, we can look back to history after 9-11 when there was a pause put onto the program. And it was four years before we were able to resettle the types of numbers that we thought um, would we would be able to make successful. Given the administration talking about their desire for stronger vetting, um, in your role, are there things you can think of that would make the process safer, reduce the threat of terrorism? Unfortunately, in my role um, here in the state, it's our job to create welcoming communities here and not necessarily to be part of the vetting process. Um, But I do think that there is a component of creating that welcoming for incoming refugees that does provide those wraparound supports that create that safety that we all desire. And finally, once refugees come here, they get support from local service agencies. They help find housing, jobs, health care. They do language training sometimes. And the money to support those services comes in part from the federal government. Will those services for refugees who are here, will that still be available in the future? In the short, yes, we think so. Um, Our budget, like all federal budgets, is part of the continuing resolution through April 28th. So right now we're really only funded until April 28th. Um, That being said, I would say that the EO that the president signed was not wholly unexpected. And so over the past couple months, we've put a lot of contingency measures into place, knowing that refugees might need more services moving forward rather than less. Kit, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Kit Tainter is Colorado's state refugee coordinator. Follow CPR News for more on the effects of President Trump's executive orders on Colorado in the weeks and months ahead. (music) 
Shortly after the new year, Denver police announced it had created a draft highlighting changes in its use of force policy, with a focus on encouraging officers to work through conflicts with citizens before resorting to force and minimizing the amount of force used when called for. Much of the material in the 10-page document is based on national best practices, but there's been criticism locally by the police union, Denver's independent monitor, and community groups. Denver Police Chief Robert White is here to discuss the new use of force policy. Chief White, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me. What was the thinking that led to the creation of this new use of force policy? Well, you know, uh, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I think, as you well know, I've been in five departments and I've had an opportunity to kind of travel around the country and speak on uh, transformational change in uh, 21st century policing. Uh, And uh, when I was hired by the mayor, he made it quite clear that we needed to uh, change the culture of our department, which was one of the reasons that I found uh, this this opportunity to be so so challenging and, and, and a wonderful opportunity. So the reality of it is that I'm, I am kind of of the opinion after so many years in so many departments and talking to so many people around the country who are experts uh, in, in law enforcement is uh, given what has occurred the last maybe 10 years or so, uh, the reality of it is policing has changed, expectations has changed, but the police department and police officers have been a little behind. So so the, the goal is to uh, create a police department that meets the expectations of the 21st century. So one of the things that we've uh, uh one of the things I, I'll say I when it's not popular, and I'll say we when it is popular. One of the one of the things that uh, when I first got here. Um, I had to kind of make an assessment of the department to determine if we were ready for a culture change. And to be honest with you, uh, I was of the opinion uh, that we were not ready. So we sort of had to kind of create a foundation to to be ready. And that required uh, demoting some people, promoting some people, changing our evaluation system, changing what we really what we really value as a department, changing our mission mission statement. So we've done a lot of those things. So and after doing those things, now you can get to the policies. And, and is, is is that the, the 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 changing of a police force to a twenty first century police force? That that's what you mentioned earlier. What what does that mean exactly? That, that means actually have a police department that that are that are meeting the expectations of of the twenty first century of the demands. You know, when 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 I was a police officer, officer pounding to be some some time ago, uh, what citizens expected then is completely what they expect what different than what they expect now you know then we could go to a meeting and even when i was an assistant chief in dc mm-hmm. uh which is some 10 15 years ago i could go to a meeting and tell the citizens you know as a result of looking at crime uh these are the things that we're seeing and and uh, pretty much kind of tell them what we're seeing and tell them what we're doing today that's not good enough not only do they want you to share with them what you're seeing and what you're doing but they want to have a voice in what you do and how you do it uh and if they've, they've raised the bar so and they can also see with with police cameras and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention that we have everybody has a camera, <laughs> uh, so everything that you see is is subject to become to become public. So, so what do you think will be the most difference? Uh, the most different in this new use of force policy? The, I think the biggest difference in that policy is the biggest challenge that we have in policing across this country. You know, uh, tr- tr- traditionally. Uh, we have trained officers on the legality of the law, what they can do, what they can't do, how to run, how to shoot, uh, policies and procedures. Officers would get involved in a, and this is a problem that we have in Denver. It's the same problem that we have across the country. And this is kind of my opinion and an opinion of a whole, whole lot of other, uh, 
experts in the field. Officers were getting involved in a controversial incident. Controversial, not meaning good or bad, just controversial. And let's make it uh, an, uh, an extreme one, a shooting, and someone loses their life. Uh, and in Denver, uh, that case goes to the DA like it does in every other city. The DA looks at it, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't raise to to the level where it is a criminal offense. So the DA exonerates the officer. Community's getting really frustrated now. And then after the officer is exonerated from the DA, comes over to my office, the police department. We look at it for administrative violations. We look at it and say, hmm, no administrative violations. And I give it to the executive director of safety, and she, she con- con- concurs with that. So now you have a community... Uh, you always have your critics no matter what you do. But now you even have citizens who would traditionally kind of support the police. They're seeing these controversial things. They're starting to ask themselves, that officer didn't get indicted. That officer uh, didn't get fired. That officer didn't get suspended. And a lot of people forming the opinion that the officer broke the law. I will tell you most of the times, not all the times, most of the times the officer didn't break the law. But the citizens are really asking themselves, were those actions necessary? So the biggest change that you see in policing and the biggest thing that I policy speaks to is we're raising the bar. Uh, We're not only asking officers to make sure their actions are legal, but make sure they're absolutely necessary. Now, an example of one of those instances, I think, that that you're you're speaking of was the death of Jessica Hernandez, a Denver teenager who was shot and killed by police in her car two years ago. The department changed its policy on how officers react in situations involving vehicles. Now, officers cannot shoot inside a moving vehicle unless someone inside the vehicle is shooting at them. If that policy had been in place, is it likely there would have been a different outcome? Well, that's a great question. I've been asked that a lot. First, let me say that. Let me say this. That that policy change was not just a result of the incident uh, as related to uh, uh, to Jessica. Uh, what what we did uh, after that incident uh, and after some other incidents that were close in proximity in time, went back. I had to, had uh, our planning unit go back 10 years to look at all incidents involving police officers shooting into cars. And as a result of that review, uh, a decision was made uh, that we were no longer shooting cars uh, where the car was the only thing that was uh, perceived to be the daily force. Uh, but along with that, also, we had to provide some training. So if the policy was in place now as it relates to what happened then, that's hindsight. And, and, and given that, you know, there's probably pending litigation uh, pertaining to that particular case, so it would not be in the best, it would not be fair to the family or to the or to the department of the city to make make a comment as it relates to what would have happened if that policy was in place at, at that particular time. But, but is the goal of the new policy overall to create different outcomes than what you're yeah, seeing right I, now? Yeah, the, absolutely. The goal of the new policy is to absolutely focus on de-escalation, uh, making sure obviously officers are going to do what is legal for the most part, and, uh, but we want them to also factor in the factor of was it really necessary to do that? And when the policy is finalized, what kind of training will officers undergo to ensure that they're going to adhere to this policy? Uh, every officer in the department will go through training that will speak to the changes in the particular policy. But, but you know, uh, I, as you probably know, I've, I've attended a lot of meetings as it relates to the policy. But the one thing that I really tell citizens is that this is not just about a policy. This is about changing a culture. So the policy policies are just one. We have hundreds and hundreds of policies. Policies are just one piece of changing that culture, like I had mentioned earlier. First of all, we got to make sure that we're in a position to change that culture, and we have to change some internal things even before we get to the policy. But I also want to comment on some of the criticism when uh, when you started off that people have been, some of the critics have been upset uh, that 
they feel that they should have been sitting at the table writing the draft with with the police department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I've gone to a few meetings where it got pretty pretty aggressive uh, because they felt that didn't happen. And my response to them is, you know what? That draft is not the words of Chief Robert C. White. That draft is the the voices I've heard from the mamas that have lost their that have lost their children at the hands of police, uh, regardless of the circumstances. The the hundreds of meetings that I've attended across this country, I mean across our city, looking at what else is going on around the country. The thousands of conversations that members of my command staff have had as it relates to what to as it relates to what they want. So I didn't want a draft, and it's just a draft. But I didn't want a draft that was con- that was done by my staff and six or seven or eight other outside individuals that allegedly represent another handful of people. I wanted a draft that represented the voices of this entire uh, community. Of the community. And, and one of those community groups is the Colorado Latino Forum. And uh, Lisa Calderon of the forum worked with the Denver Sheriff's Department when it revamped its policy. And she describes the differences between that process and your departments in this clip. And I'll note she refers to Denver's manager of safety, Stephanie O'Malley. We went through the policy line by line, word by word, with city attorneys, uh, with command staff and deputies, and community representatives, mental health people, etc. And so everybody got to see it from their angle and had a greater understanding. That's why there's no pushback on Denver Sheriff Department policy, because it went through this kind of robust community engagement process. The only difference between the two is that Stephanie O'Malley supported that process um, of transparency because the community demanded it. With Chief White, he's the sole arbiter. What's your reaction to that, Chief White, that you're the sole arbiter of this new policy? Well, I can say a couple of things. Some of them wouldn't be as complimentary, so maybe I won't say those things. But I will say this as it relates to that. I'm not the sole arbiter. As I related, was I wasn't interested in sitting down with a group of individuals like Lisa Calderon and others that represent a small contingent of the entire community. I was interested in hearing the voice of the entire community. And that's why uh, that policy was the result of me going to hundreds of meetings, talking to thousands of individuals. And after listening to those voices, uh, that that draft is is the, the voices of the entire community, or at least the thousands of individuals that we spoke to versus the eight or nine or 10 individuals that were sitting at the table that allegedly represents another maybe 100 or two individuals. So we, we different as it relates to uh, how the draft was put together. And again, that's only a draft. I mean, you know, we've uh, as a result of the draft, obviously, we we went public with it and 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 asked the entire community uh, to to look at it, told them where they could get it, and they can send us response uh, uh, via, uh, email. via email yeah. or via the three public meetings in which two we've already had. We've already had two public meetings where they can personally come in and share with me. I attend those meetings, and but those can, meetings were they they were organized after the criticism. They came. they were well. Lisa would tell you they were organized after her criticism, uh, but they were organized after 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 what Lisa had to say. In fairness to to some of the, some of her comments, but also as a result of some of the emails that we had already received uh, electronically. The policy is labeled a draft right now. Uh, when do you expect it to be finalized? Well, my my goal is to have a final policy uh, no later than uh, no later than March. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking with Denver Police Chief Robert White about the department's new use of force policy, which is currently being drafted. I want to go back a bit to some of the words you were using earlier, uh, de-escalation, use of force. One of the criticisms of the new policy is that it's it's too vague. Uh, for example, that these words seem to be open to interpretation. Uh, how do you ensure the policy is clear and unambiguous for officers? Well, if you look at the uh, Colorado state law, it... it, it uh it states that officers' actions should be uh, appropriate and reasonable based on uh, what they think is appropriate and reasonable. So, I mean, there there are— The, there the are, officer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's not Robert White or that's not necessarily the policy by itself. I mean, to, to, be, to be perfectly practical, uh, officers are going to have to have some discretion. They have to have discretion and 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 and—, and uh, there are consequences when those, that discretion is not in the best interest of whatever the, the scenarios that they're fronting with. I mean, we have a matrix that speaks to speaks to, to discipline. Every police officer will receive training as once this policy is in place. Uh, that the training is going to is going to take longer than much longer than actually the actual implementation of the mm-hmm. policy because we have fifteen hundred police officers. Uh, um, we give examples. We give definitions of what necessity means, what appropriate means, what proportional, uh, uh, what's reasonable. We give those definitions. But you need to understand reasonable, uh, inappropriate, or actually already in the state. That those are the, the same words and the same definitions uh, uh, that the state law requires. So it, it it will be next to impossible to have something that is just absolute uh, for for officers to do. Uh, so what you try to do is make sure that they have the training uh, and they understand uh, how what reasonable really means given the, the, the totality of the circumstances that they're being confronted with. They understand what necessity really means. But there will always be some objectivity as it relates to uh, asking officers to do their jobs. So, so other cities, including Baltimore and Seattle, have implicitly defined many of the same terms. In Seattle, for example, officers may only use physical force when, quote, no reasonably effective alternative appears to exist, end quote. Oh, you used that word reasonable again. So, right. So think about that. <laughs> but again, it, it's it's written into the policy for yes. these, you know, Baltimore and Seattle, where it may not be in, in well, yours. Well, actually, it it will be. Uh, that you know, with that draft that you see, uh, the old policy prior to that draft was thirty pages long, and it factored in use of force. It factored in what happens when you have a taser. It factored in a lot of things that are not particularly in that policy. The policy that you see basically is sort of the the philosophy for what we stand for as a police department. There are auxiliary, uh, there are ancillary policies as it relates to different tools, uh, different uses of force, uh, responsibilities that officers have that will be attached to that policy. So once this policy is in place, all of those ancillary policies, such as some of the things that they're doing in Baltimore and some of the other things that the monitor and other people accuse us of not having, we actually do have. We just extract them from that policy. And once that policy is in place, we'll go back and look at all those ancillary policies to make sure that they're very consistent with the the foundation of what you're looking at right now. Like you mentioned, you have since scheduled three community forums on on this policy. Uh, did the reaction from the community change your mind about including public input? I mean, for example, the ta- the, the taser question. Uh, Denver's uh, independent monitor says that tasers are not mentioned uh, in 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 your your safety policy, and that's a concern for him. Well, because it's mentioned in another policy, <laughs> uh, the the monitor is accustomed to the monitor looked at our 
of original policy, which was 30 pages, uh, and actually kind of looking at looking at 21st, and everyone likes to use, uh, they like to remind me of the 21st century, the President Obama's 21st century task force when it's convenient for them. So obviously the monitor referred to it also. But that, that, that task force also recommended that policies need to be shortened and more concise. So that is the more concise policy as it relates to philosophically what we're about. And all of those ancillary policies will speak to tasers and all the other weapons that officers have. So, yeah, I, you know, obviously, and we met with the monitor. I think we're meeting with him again. Uh, and we're all, uh, to be honest with you, I think he already knows. But anyway, uh, he decided that he needed to do what he needed to do. And we'll have a discussion as it relates to that. But his questions will all be answered like the questions of many other citizens. And that's Denver's independent monitor, Nicholas Mitchell. Uh, Chief, if an incident occurs after this policy is implemented, what happens next? How will reports and investigations change? Well, obviously, we have a... First, let me say this. Uh, every, everybody's entitled to due process, uh, and that includes the officers. But uh, there are consequences for their actions, regardless of what they are. We have a matrix, a matrix which determines the type of discipline given the particular scenario that they're that they're confronted with at the time. So if officers violate our policies, there are absolutely consequences as it relates to that that are attached to some form of discipline, depending on the, the nature of the violation. And... In terms of the police, there has been criticism from the police union that uh, you may be potentially paralyzing the police and, and, and making them do things that they may not feel just when they're in the event. Sure. Yeah. You know, I actually, uh, the police union, the executive board, I've met with them also. And obviously they think the policy is too restrictive. And then I have citizens, uh, particularly some of the activists, uh, think the policies and the monitor don't think the policy is restrictive enough. So, you know, sometimes when you have these two these two forces and they both have issues with you, mm, some might say maybe I got it right because I got both sides are pretty, pretty upset for different reasons. So, yeah, I mean, I, and obviously um, uh, um, I'm concerned about the troops. Uh, uh, I've met I met with the executive board uh, of, of the uh, of the union, uh, attempted to hear what they had to say, attempted to articulate what that draft was saying, what I was willing to, to give on and what I wasn't willing to give on. Uh, and obviously uh, they've submitted their proposals like other proposals we've gotten from these meetings in the community. And when it's all said and done, we're going to take all that information. We're going to look at it. And, and my commitment is it was then and it still is. If if somebody is submitting something that would make the policy better, it's consistent with what the the desires of this community is because policy should speak to the desires of the community. If it's consistent with the with the desires of the community and if it's legal and if it's something that we can do, it will be part of the final policy. What aren't you willing to give on? I am not willing to compromise on the the the, the need to raise the bar from just reasonable and and uh, appropriate to necessity. So the 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 real give and the real disconnect that we have in policing across this country, citizens are asking where the actions of the officers are were they really necessary. So we want to raise that bar. You know, there's the um, I, I think the Constitution has Graham versus Connors, which says an officer's actions have to be have to be reasonable uh, and appropriate, given what the officer think is reasonable and appropriate at the time. So. Obviously, we want that. We're not going to, I mean, we can't lower what the, what the law says, but we're raising the bar. Not only does it have to be reasonable and appropriate, but it also has to be necessary. 
But there, there is concern, like we mentioned, you may paralyze your officers no, in ten situations. No, we're not going to paralyze the officers. You know, uh, to be honest with you, just because it's legal doesn't always make it necessary. I've spent uh, uh, time with talking with just officers, not even the officials. There's a lot of ranks between me and the officers out in the beat that are providing our safety. I've cut away from all those ranks. This is so important. And I had meetings with over 500 officers with no sergeants, lieutenants, captains, commanders, or chiefs talking about uh, – from their perspective, what their concerns were, but also uh, sharing with them where I thought we needed to go as a police department. You say this is going to come out in March. That is your plan. That, to- that, that, that is the goal, barring mitigating circumstances. And I've kind of learned in, in the environment that we're in right now, there always seems to be something that's mitigating that throws a curb in what you're trying to do. And so citizens and uh, police officers can still submit uh, questions and concerns to you as this draft moves forward? I absolutely welcome them and value them greatly. Chief, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Chief Robert White and Denver Police are implementing a new use of force policy in the hopes of lessening conflicts between officers and citizens. We discuss facets of the new policy as well as criticism from local citizens groups. On tomorrow's program, we'll speak with one of those critics, Lisa Calderon of the Colorado Latino Forum. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Getting to the summit of an active volcano in Antarctica is not an easy feat. Just ask Littleton space artist Michael Carroll. He and a friend travel to the top of Mount Erebus to do research for a book about volcanoes in space. Carroll, who is also a published writer, says the exotic environment of Antarctica gives him an idea of what conditions might be like on other planets. He joins me now after recently returning from that trip. Uh, Mike, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Nathan. Great to be here. Uh, Briefly, before we get into the details of this trip, uh, what the heck is a space artist? (laughs) So um, we uh, try to portray landscapes of other worlds in painting uh, accurately. We use science uh, to help. And that was really the heart of our trip to Antarctica. We were looking for planetary analogs, places on Earth that look like uh, or that may look like uh, places in the uh, rest of the solar system, different uh, areas. So So is a lot of this conjecture? Is there science behind how some of these places that we've never been before look in your eyes? Right. It's a a combination. And so, uh, for example, we went to Erebus to study these um, ice towers that grow around uh, volcanic vents. We think that that's happening on Saturn's moon Enceladus, uh, maybe Jupiter's moon Europa, where you get uh, geyser activity as well. Now, you have uh, have nearly 30 published books. Uh, your art has appeared in magazines such as Time, Scientific American, and Natural Geographic. You've done work for NASA. So this is something you're established as, as a, a space artist. Um, describe what one of your space pieces might look like. Okay. Um, well, for example, uh, on Mount Erebus, we, we took a look at these strange features, took a lot of photos. I did a few sketches uh, back at the lower Erebus hut. Uh, and uh, then uh, once I was home, I took a canvas uh, and uh, put those things together in the context that they would be on Enceladus. You have to figure out how big Saturn would be in the sky, for example, yeah. and things like that. So, And then, of course, he's using science, of course, is that – as that uh, uh, moves forward. Oh, and and there is a picture. You're holding up a large canvas of that, and there it is. You have 
these ice shafts uh, with Saturn in the background. And uh, it looks like you're actually on, on Saturn, <laughs> around the moon there. That, that area. Uh, now, I, I understand your, your trip to Antarctica began with an email from a friend. What did that email say? So uh, Rosalie Lopez is a uh, volcanologist at uh, NASA. That does not mean she studies people with pointy ears. <laughs> she studies volcanoes. Right. And uh, she um, wanted to do a grant with me uh, for the National Science Foundation's uh, Writers and Artists program. About uh, three or four people are sent down to Antarctica every year to um, kind of promote the science that's being done there through the arts. And so we put together a proposal and uh, um, with her as scientist and me as the principal investigator since I was the artist. And uh, they went for it and treated us very well. I was so impressed with NSF and with McMurdo and the operations they do down there. It was an amazing place. So you took photos on on this of these of these vents, is that correct? And right. The so these ice towers form over caves, essentially ice caves, and some of those we were able to climb down into. They were just uh, Rosalie kept saying she felt like she was on the set of Frozen. It was just amazing, um, beautiful crystals and blue light coming through the ceilings and stuff. So amazing stuff. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Michael Carroll of Littleton. He's an artist who specializes in scientific drawings and paintings and recently returned from Antarctica, where he did research for a new book. Let's go through that journey in Antarctica. You left Colorado in mid-December and flew uh, to McMurdo Station. Uh, This is a U.S. research center in Antarctica. What did it look like? Um, it looks a little like a Colorado mining town. Uh, it's pretty rugged. There's nothing growing there. It's all dirt. Uh, they have three seasons, dirt, mud, and ice, and uh, a lot of wind. But um, it feels like a small town. People look you in the eye. People are uh, care for each other. They're worried about safety. It's basically a survival situation. And so you, you uh, uh, come together as a very strong community. And from there, they stay stage all the remote camps uh, that study uh, the weird uh, isolated places across the continent. And you can only get there during certain times of the year, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. The The summer, the austral summer, which uh, peaks around December, January, uh, that's the best place to go. The sea ice is just breaking up. Uh, when we were down there, it was still uh, pretty frozen. Uh, but that's where the plains land. So you do want some good ice down there. Uh, so from there, you took a helicopter to Fang Glacier sure that's a campsite where uh, you acclimatize to the altitude and the climate there. And, and I understand the upper slopes of Mount Erebus are visible from that location. How long did you have to be there before you were like, okay, I'm ready to go up there. I'm ready to, to see those things. Uh, we were excited to go from day one, but I'm not sure we were ever feeling like we were physically able. It was two brutal nights on Fang Glacier. You don't get to heat your tents. Um, the sun never goes down, so it's bright all the time. Uh, I don't think we slept much at all. What temperatures are we talking about here? Um, not bad, really. Uh, when the sun is out and the wind is uh, down, it feels like being in Estes Park on a sunny day in the winter. But it did get down to minus 25 or 30 when the wind came up. 
And uh, you're diabetic, is that mm-hmm. correct? Uh, how did that play in, into your, your traveling to Antarctica? You, you did this entire journey with an insulin pump. What kind of additional challenges did, did that present? Well, I had to take two of everything, including the pump. Uh, I had to take two months' worth of insulin. Uh, the, the only problem was making sure the insulin didn't freeze because that will ruin a bottle of insulin uh, and everything's cold down there. But uh, the pump was amazing. It, it was flawless. And so um, I did well. They have a whole medical team that watches out for you before, during, and after. And so uh, I felt real good about that aspect of it. Now, uh, let's talk about you're at the summit of Mount Erebus. It's an active volcano that is nearly 12,500 feet above sea level. You explored ice caves and those ice towers we mentioned earlier. It seems like a pretty dangerous environment. Were there some dicey moments? It is a dangerous environment. Uh, We spent a week training at McMurdo before we went up. uh, And they spent all that time telling us ways that Antarctica was going to try to kill us. And I wasn't sleeping well anyway, you know. So, (laughs) But uh, but it was good. We learned how to crawl out of crevasses and avoid falling through ice and various things. Uh, We had a mountaineer assigned to us. Evan Miller, and he was incredible. Uh, so he kept us on the straight and narrow, and, and uh, so we we felt safe. But the summit was spectacular. Uh, the caldera, the big crater at the top of the volcano, is very deep. Uh, it has a lava lake in the bottom. We were not able to see it because of the steam. Um, the rocks, some of them are green from the sulfur. Um, it's just, uh, and you can see eleven thousand feet down to the ocean. It's just gorgeous. Are you integrating any of the the visuals you saw there into these paintings that you're creating right now? Absolutely. Um, Erebus is a great analog for several places in the solar system. Um, Jupiter's moon Io has uh, lava lakes all over it. And there are only six volcanoes on Earth that have active lava lakes. So it's a, a good place to, to gain some insight into these cosmic uh, vistas. Are there any other extreme places around the world you'd like to go to that may help you visualize future planets and places that we may get to? Absolutely. I hear southern Philadelphia is very alien. Okay. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> there, yeah, there are, I mean, the world is full of amazing places, and uh, I, I just uh, want to continue to explore. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Nathan. It was fun. Michael Carroll is an astronomical artist who lives in Littleton. He recently returned from Antarctica, where he did research for a new book. Carol expects that to be out late this year. Uh, You can see photos of his trip and his artwork at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Pueblo oil painter Teresa Vito never thought she'd see her work cruising I-25. But that could be a reality soon if lawmakers approve a special license plate featuring her painting of Pueblo chilies. Democratic State Representative Danea Escar of Pueblo is sponsoring the license plate bill. Teresa, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You've lived in Pueblo for about 16 years, is yes, that right? Yeah? Yes. What significance do chilies have for you and for Pueblo? Well, first of all, we believe that the best chilies around. And um, during autumn, you can smell them roasting through the whole town. And that, to me, is the smell of autumn. 
Now, your painting that would be used in the license plates is a close-up, and, and it looks like a bouquet of chilies. There's yes. green leaves. How did you decide to paint them in this specific way, with, with the leaves and the, and, the, and the branches, I guess, of, the, of this plant? Well, a lot. When they asked me to do the logos, one of those they wanted one of those old-fashioned labels they had in the 30s and 40s, uh-huh. and they usually showed the farmland and then the close-up of the chilies. So this bouquet of chilies, they is um, just a close-up of how they grow. They do face up towards the sun. And how long did it take you to to paint this? Well, I only had about seven days from when they asked me till when they needed it, so it took me about a week. Now, I I know place is important for you in your work. How much of a challenge was it to capture Pueblo in, in this one small logo on a license plate? Well... The Pueblo Chile is just the pride of that whole area, and also because it is about farmland, um, and just to see how it is grown was important. And all of Colorado's special license plates look similar. Um, they have white mountains with a, with a logo in the middle between the license numbers. Um, so your bouquet of chilies is going to be in the middle of that yes. if, this, if this bill passes. Right. Did you ever think that would be something that oh. you would be doing? Oh, never, never. I'm a fine artist and I just sell out of uh, galleries and I'm not a commercial artist. so I'm not used to seeing my stuff all over the place. Now, painting, advertising, art, and logos is not what you normally no. do. Uh, you were able to do this commission pretty uh, easily. Uh, how does your normal work connect to the Pueblo Chile artwork? I'm known for traditional painting, representational. I, plant, I paint landscapes, still lifes, figuratives. I've painted outside all up and down the front range and in Colorado. So that was something I knew how to do. And you've seen your work appear on billboards and on big banners at Pueblo's annual chili festival and signs at the state fair. Um, Where else do you think your your paintings will go? Well, now that they're – if they get to be on a car or a truck, I figure it's going to be all over the country. And – how were you asked to do this? Did you go forward and be like, hey, I'd like to do this? Or did someone come and ask you this? No, Chris Markison of the um, Pueblo County Economic Development called me. And he had known my artwork from when he lived in Fort Collins from a gallery. And since they wanted this old-fashioned look, he thought of me and said, oh, she lives in town. Let me call her. And in terms of the the... the the love you have for Pueblo, yes. it sounds, and for these chilies. Is there inspiration you get by making recipes with, with chilies in them and things like that? Oh, definitely. I'm not the cook in my house, but I do enjoy uh, eating them. And I have a, our friends get together and we buy a, a bushel and you know separate them and have them in the freezer. So they're always available. And and final final questions here. Um, why why would you want people to to come down to Pueblo? You want to see the license plate, of course, on cars as basically kind of a, an ambassador to Pueblo. What right. makes this area important to you and to Colorado? Oh, I think it's a secret gem. Uh, the weather is great. The buildings are beautiful. Uh, the mesa where they grow the chilies are gorgeous. I have been well, I moved there 16 years ago, and they are a very welcoming community. I've been supported by them. It's a great place to live. 
and visit. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Pueblo oil painter Teresa Vito created the artwork that appears in a proposed special license plate promoting Pueblo chilies. The special plates are awaiting approval at the State House, and we've got photos of Vito's paintings and the proposed license plate at cprnews.org. Well, have you seen them? The birds that make it inside Denver International Airport. They fly around the terminal and concourses, and we wondered what DIA does about them. So we called up spokesman Heath Montgomery, who has certainly noticed the birds himself. Well, it's hard not to. They're kind of all over the place. And it's a safe bet that most of the airports in the United States face some kind of bird problem inside their facility. There's just too many ways that they can get into the buildings themselves through jet bridges, loading docks, open doors in the terminals when passengers are moving in and out. So they've definitely been here for many years. I wonder if they live for very long and what they might eat. You know, we're really just not sure. Uh, We certainly see them poking around the food courts and near the trash cans. We we absolutely discourage employees and passengers from feeding any kind of wildlife. We want to discourage them from being in our facility. Uh, But they're certainly making the best of their situation. And uh, it's a little unknown how they're getting in and out exactly, and whether they're moving outside with people and collecting food and moving back in, or if they're nesting and procreating in the building in places that we just don't know about. There's some unknowns associated with this. Well, this is interesting because I thought of the birds as trapped, but you say that one possibility is that they're moving in and out and they've just made DIA home. Yeah, it's certainly a possibility that they have figured out that when people walk through those doors, the doors stay open for a few seconds and they can move in and out as they please. Well, I gather that it is a goal of yours to move them to the outside, but DIA is not small and that can't be um, an easy task. No, it's extremely difficult to remove birds from the airport. The terminal alone is 1.5 million square feet of space with really huge expanses all the way up to the tented rooftop. And the concourses feature an additional 4 million square feet of space. So it's a giant area to try and control with a handful of personnel who are trained to do that kind of thing. It's a very difficult task. Have you ever tried to get a, a census, a number on the birds that are in the facility? Uh, No, not to my knowledge. Uh, We have made several attempts to uh, trap them, remove them over the years. Uh, We work very closely with our partners at the USDA wildlife teams to mitigate wildlife across the airport, and that includes inside the building. They've tried things like putting up small netting, traps, but we have not found a single technique that is successful. They're just, they're very small, they're smart, and they're fast little birds. What kind of birds are they, do you know? Yeah, I don't know the the specifics, but we get a lot of sparrows. Uh, We've even had a bat inside one of the terminals. Uh, This USDA team you talk about working on the inside of the airport is the same team that would work on getting birds away from the runways so that there aren't bird strikes. Absolutely. And that's one of the challenges that we face is that they have high priorities of keeping people safe on aircraft out on the airfield. So it takes their time to come inside to the building to try and remove these little birds that really are not posing a direct safety hazard to travelers. So they have uh, bigger fish to fry. This sounds like an area that is just waiting for an invention, some kind of technology that could help you get these birds out. Absolutely. We're open to innovation. If anyone has a really good idea about how to capture and remove these little uh, birds, we're certainly open to hearing it. DIA dealing with all kinds of flight, I guess. (laughs) All kinds of flight. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. DIA spokesman Heath Montgomery speaking with my colleague Ryan Warner about the birds you may have seen at DIA. (laughs) 
Thanks to Malcolm Hughes, Anthony Cotton, Michelle P. Fulcher, Shauna Lewis, Stephanie Wolf. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. You can also email us. Click connect at the top of CPRnews.org or comment at the bottom of articles on the website. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. And you can also join the Public Insight Network and help connect your experiences to the news. Go to CPRnews.org and scroll down to share what you know. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.